So now, how do I transition from that to a sermon uh, on love, and particularly romantic love and love in a marriage? <laughs> well, it made me think, uh, if Pastor Yvonne was languishing in prison, uh, really the whole impetus for Valentine's Day, did you all celebrate Valentine's Day last week? Uh, I still got red on for Valentine's Day. Uh, big fan. Uh, big fan because Valentine's Day came about in the, uh, as a commemoration of the life of a very notable Christian whose name was Valentine. Uh, he was a pastor, and uh, he was in prison from the Emperor Claudius uh, because he refused to stop performing marriages for young Christian couples who were in love. Claudius said, you've got to stop this because when young men get married, I can't send them to war to fight my battles. And, and Valentine was like, no, because marital love is divinely given. And so he continued to marry these couples, uh, and as a result, he was in prison. He, like Pastor Yvonne, was bold in prison. Uh, he prayed for the jailer's daughter who was blind, and she was healed, <laughs> leading to many conversions. Uh, and uh, ultimately, though, the emperor, because Valentine would not stop, uh, he had him executed, and he actually was beheaded. And I think that's where we get the idea that I fell head over heels or I lost my head uh, for this woman. I don't know. Uh, yeah, the groan is appropriate. Uh, but he shows us that romantic love, which I'm going to talk about, is not just a sentimental, feeling-based driven thing. Uh, romantic love is part of the expression uh, of a love that is principled, that is holy, that is beautiful, uh, that is part of God's plan, and it traces itself back to God. And, and, and I want to just say, if, if this is your, so I'm going to talk about marital love. I'm going to talk about love that wants to be touched. I'm going to talk about sex and erotic love. And if this is your first time at Covenant, I just want you to know, I don't talk about sex all the time. <laughs> um, but what you should know is that we do talk about everything that the Bible talks about, and we seek to do it in G through the lens of Jesus, because Jesus only brings up an issue because he wants us to be more whole, and he wants us to be healed. Uh, and I had a woman last night who experienced the horror of being raped, and here I am talking about sex. I didn't know this, and so she came up to me after the service last night, and she just said, I found those words so healing to my soul, because you placed in context something that had been used to take something from me and to traumatize me and you put it in its holy context. And I said, that's Jesus. I'm so glad you experienced Jesus. But I know that this can be a trigger to trauma, okay? So if, if that's you, if you've experienced that, um, God is only raising this so that you might experience greater healing, not to traumatize you. But the, the reality is that the church has often done a bad job when we talk about our sexual, the sexual calling and relationship that God has set for the place of marriage. And the reality is the last thing God says about the world before it's catapulted into the fall is Adam and Eve's intimate sexual relationship. In Genesis 2, and these are the last words before sin comes into the world and messes everything up, uh, it says uh, it is for this reason that a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves and is united to his wife and they become one flesh, referring to the sex act within marriage. And it says Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. There's no shame. It's perfect innocence. And, you know, sometimes we think of Genesis in a wrong way. We know that uh, man and woman are created on day number six in Genesis. Uh, what happens on day number seven? Everybody rest, right? And, and we almost make it look like on day eight. What happens on day eight? 
we actually don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. <laughs> but we actually make it look like on day eight, Adam and Eve sinned, and the whole thing got screwed up. And so God created them on day six. They rested on day seven. They didn't even live 24 hours before they messed the whole thing up. And that isn't how the Bible speaks. I think they could have lived years, decades longer uh, enjoying their unfallen relationship in an unspoiled creation. The Bible doesn't say about those time frames. Uh, and, and so, um, again, we've often only talked about how sin messed up our sexual experience and sexuality, which sin has done that. And we don't talk about how originally it was designed by God to be good. And so the book in the Bible that celebrates, and I use that word advisedly, that celebrates our sexuality is a book that is often neglected. It's called the Song of Songs. And it's called the Song of Songs because love is the heartbeat of God. And it's, it's sometimes understood as Solomon's Song of Songs, but I don't believe he wrote it. He was one really messed up dude in terms of sex, okay? He used sex for political power. He used sex only for, for his, his pleasure. He was really messed up. Uh, but I believe it was the Song of Songs, and in eight chapters, uh, there's about 20 songs that celebrate in the most intimate way uh, sexuality in the confines as God intended within a marriage between a man and a woman in the vows. And so this song begins, actually, is the song of songs. So this would have been the song, if it played at a wedding, it would have been the song that got everybody out on the dance floor. Um, and, and it probably was played at weddings. And, it, and, you know, so some of the greatest songs have been attempts to celebrate love. And it begins again with the woman. This is kind of countercultural to some people's understanding of the Bible, but she is the one who is expressing unashamedly her desire to be with her husband. She's looking forward to it. And, and so the purity of this is, is God's design. And so sometimes Christians have done a really bad job because we know how harmful taking sex out of context can be. And so uh, in almost a scare tactic, we say, hey, sex is filthy, dirty, it's unmentionable. Save it for the one you love. <laughs> Which is not quite the biblical pattern, Okay. Uh, other times, the, the church uh, has, and I think this has more been a thing of, of the past, uh, not just the ancient past, but I think the church is really overall, all branches of the church have moved on. Uh, but there was a point in time where the church uh, declared that there were many days in which sexual relationship in, within a marriage were forbidden. It got to the point by 1517, when Martin Luther came along uh, as a Protestant reformer, there were... Uh, and this wasn't the reason for it, but there were 183 days on which the church said to married couples, you cannot have sex on these days. Added to that some feast days and other times, you got to almost like two-thirds of the year where couples who were in marriage were not allowed to have sex. Uh, and so, viva la Reformation, this is a great reason to be Protestant. Um, um, and, and so, uh, Martin Luther, of course, uh, lived as, as a Protestant priest, and he uh, overturned... Uh, the wrong idea that priests need to be celibate and the idea. So he honored God with a marriage that was godly and such. But, but the recovery of biblical marriage and biblical realism about the place of sexuality within a marriage. Uh, and so this is all important work. And so, so in the Song of Songs, some of the verses you probably know are on this next slide. The, uh, you've probably seen, he brought me to his banqueting table, his banner over me is love. Uh, this verse about being treasured. Or my beloved is his and I, uh, my beloved is mine and I am his. That in a marriage you don't belong to yourself, you belong to each other. 
And then I love this verse because it so exalts the place of what marriage is meant to be. Uh, This is my beloved and this is my friend. Uh, Sexual relationship within a marriage can't be this isolated compartment that functions apart from marriage being a place of your deepest, most intimate friendship. Uh, It's God's idea that marriage be uh, with that person who is both your lover and your friend, your most intimate friend. It has to occur in the context where you share all of your life, your deepest failures, your hurts, the things you wrestle with and change. I'm so blessed that in my 31 years of marriage, that's what I've had. I've had my my best friend is my wife. Uh, And so God intends that your marriage be rooted in a deep friendship, but that your your marriage also have the fire of a torrid love affair. That's, that's God's perfect intention um, for our marriage. And so the Song of Songs creates this beautiful and holy portrait of idealized marriage. It's like God pulls the veil back in a, and, and says, this is what marriage is really intended to be. And so uh, you find in the song, and it's kind of like a musical or like an opera with various characters singing. And if you follow along in some of the uh, translations of the Bible, they will list this is Uh, the bride speaking. This is the groom speaking. This is the chorus speaking. Uh, And they complement and affirm one another because they're celebrating each other. And and I love the the psalm. Now, look, uh, a lot of the church uh, and even in the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew Bible, the rabbis said, this book is so hot. It's too hot to handle. We don't allow anybody under the age of 30 to read it, okay? Uh, because the image, uh, the images were so specific. But the problem for us is, as English readers, it doesn't translate. So I'll just show you some of the compliments in the song are, um, your eyes are like doves. Uh, well, we, don't, we know that's meant to be positive. I don't know what that means exactly. Um, your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. I, I don't know. It doesn't seem that positive to me. But evidently, the slopes of Gilead were gorgeous, Okay. Uh, your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from washing. So it's like, you brushed your teeth, sweetie. How nice. Um, and not one of your teeth is missing. How wonderful. Um, so that seems kind of like a lowball compliment um, that is not going to get you anywhere. But, um, but these are really um, just a sample of the head to toe, and I mean, some of it is, is, is very erotic language, wholly erotic language, but I want you to see, never in the psalm do they objectify each other. You know, objectification is a sin, to look upon someone simply by their appearance, even if you say they're hot, they're hunk, they're, uh, and, and to talk about them. They don't do that. They talk to each other, and that's what makes it different, and they're praising each other uh, for the love that they have in the confines of marriage. So it pulls back that veil. Uh, But what I want to look at uh, specifically, and I'm going to spend the rest of the time really here, uh, is that they're looking at each other through the absolute covenant commitment of marriage. Uh, And so she says at the end, in chapter 8, she says, and this, this verse occurs, these very words occur a few times in the book, She says, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. And what she's saying is love, in particular sexual desire, is a dangerous thing to awaken because it's hard to control. And I love that this book is so honest about sex. We are all broken sexually. We are all far more broken. I'm more broken sexually than I want to acknowledge. We're more broken than we want to acknowledge because sex is a force that it it gets the better of us. 
and so in all these ways we're fallen, and she's saying, be careful, it's powerful. And she's almost asking the women, the, the, her fellow women, to, to make a commitment to not awaken this until it has the right context and time. And then she speaks to her beloved. She's, she's identified her friends. This is their role. They say, who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? And then she speaks and says, under the apple tree, I roused you. There your mother conceived you. There she was in labor, gave you birth. She celebrated her husband. And then she says, place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. And what she's saying is, I want a relationship with you it, it, that is based on total commitment. So that seal on your arm or, or, or around your neck, she's basically speaking of, I want your signet ring. And the signet ring was kind of like your charge card. It was your bank account card. It was access to everything about you. And she says, place me like a seal on your arm, like a seal on your heart. She says, if we're going to have this relationship, there's got to be no secrets. And we're going to be absolutely committed to each other. I sometimes have done counseling of couples. And I remember an older couple that were getting married and they were excited about getting married. But I found out in the midst of the counseling that they did, he did not want her to know how much money was in his bank account. And uncovering that, I said, look, you can have all kinds of agreements and arrangements as an older couple about how your money's going to be spent, but you cannot have secrets because that means you don't trust each other. And if you don't trust each other in, 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 in an absolute way, your marriage will never function because nothing, no relationship works without trust, especially a marriage. Uh, because the, the ethic of the Bible is that until you're ready to share everything with each other, you should not share your bodies with each other. And, and that is why in the Bible, the covenant of marriage is stronger than blood. And this is really radical in biblical days. You think of bloodlines. In traditional cultures, right, the big important thing is, well, what's your bloodline? What family? What's your clan? What's your background? Okay? But you find in Genesis, God to say, no, family background, who your parents are is is only relatively important. You know what's more important than who you share the same DNA with? It's who you share a covenant, an exclusive covenant of marriage with. And so what he's saying is when two people who come from different bloodlines, different families, maybe different races, okay, the Bible's all cool with all of that, but it says the moment that they take a covenant with each other, their commitment to with each other, even if they're from different bloodlines, races, backgrounds, all of this, they are more one with each other than they are with the the woman who gave them birth. And that is an amazing progressive thing. And so God is saying marriage towers and trumps overall. It is meant to be uh, a, a specially privileged and protected relationship. And so uh, this is how they embark on that. And she says, for love is as strong as death. I think this picks up on the marriage vow. Till death do we part. That, that in, in marriage saying, I am going to be by your side, not just on this platform as we take these vows, but at the end of life, whichever one of us goes first, the other one is going to be there. In other words, the marriage vow is, it's a promise you make to God, but it's also an appointment you make with yourself. And you say, wherever they go, I go. And we say, if you, if you want to find both of us, all you need to do is find one of us. Because we are joined to each other till death do we part. And so she says, love is as strong as death. It's jealousy as unyielding as the grave, a holy jealousy, a holy possessiveness. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. And then I love this last verse. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. 
And so it's, it's showing the exclusive nature. And so the Bible is neither prudish about our sexuality and a desire for one another that can lawfully desire to be touched, but neither is it promiscuous. And so we, we live in a world that often fluctuates between the two. I don't know, there's not a whole lot of prudishness in our world, uh, but it can be there and erupt in, in unusual ways. Uh, prudishness erupts when you decide you're going to have the talk with your kids, right? <laughs> um, all of a sudden, it's a very awkward conversation. Can we change the subject, Dad? Can we change the subject, ma- Mom? Like, it, 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 it can be awkward, right? I can feel a little awkwardness right now. Um, but promiscuity, it cheapens the gift of sexuality. And again, what God gave to actually be uh, a unique bond between a man and a woman for a lifetime then somehow becomes cheapened. And what's beautiful in the Song of Songs is you have this uh, celebration of the purity and innocence and the goodness of sexuality celebrated. And so this young girl and this young man anticipate what sex will feel like, and um, they're unsullied and unpolluted by all the things that can cheapen this. And they look at their sexual relationship as virtually tattooing each other on each other's soul. You know, I, I, I think the, the biblical reality is that... Um, Sexual intimacy is only safe for our souls. We're so constructed that our sexual experience is only safe for our souls if it is exclusive to the one person who we are, we are giving access and, and who we would tattoo uh, in a prominent place that it would be seen. I belong to this person. And, and for that person alone uh, is this access and this experience reserved. Uh, it was C.S. Lewis who wrote this. He says, the truth is that wherever a man lies with a woman or vice versa, whether they like it or not, a transcendental relationship is set up between them, which must be eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. I, I don't think that's saying too much. I mean, God does redeem, God does cleanse, God does forgive and change and purify us. Uh, but there's something happens there in which you leave a significant part of yourself behind and you take something from that other person. And that's why God protects sexuality within marriage, within those bonds that say, I'm going to be there not just the next morning, but I'm going to be there forever. And that's why it comes first. So covenant comes first before sexual experience. And that's what she's saying. She says, put me as a seal. Uh, write me on your heart. Um, and the reality is other experiences of sexuality are actually not helpful they take away. Now, uh, my wife and I were both blessed by the fact that we, had a, we fell in passionate love, not with each other, but with Jesus. When in the midst, before college, in college, so that by college years, Jesus was our core passion. We met each other actually later in graduate school, but we never actually experienced the burden. And I use that word on purpose. We never experience the burden of ever having been with anyone else sexually. We never have. And so our first experience with each other and our only experience, uh, first experience was on our wedding night and throughout our 31 years together. And that relieved us of a burden. Now, this is a burden that God loves to renew and remove. He can make us pure. He can renew us. He forgives us. He transforms us, right? But we live in a world that often says, try before you buy, right? 
uh, of, the, of this most important purchase. And we all know that try before you buy would not work very well in the milk aisle, right? You don't want somebody saying, I'll take a swig out of the jug, and then I'll, eh, I don't want 2%, I want skim, I'll put it back, you know? And uh, that, would, that would not be helpful. Uh, and, and the reality is that the try before you buy ethos, which the world has bought uh, in so many ways, it actually has the opposite effect. I was reading in a, in a secular journal that couples who live together before they marry, because they want to avoid certain areas of conflict, they actually divorce at a 50% higher rate than couples who wait. Couples who wait are getting rarer and rarer, I know. Uh, but the reality is that God, he actually understands how this is supposed to work, so maybe we ought to try it his way. And, and so the Christian sex ethic has always been no sex outside of marriage, no sex before marriage. And, and I know that sounds weird in the culture outside that we live in in 2019, but, but the answer is that the Bible has, if you've given sex to someone outside of marriage, you're not really giving love. You've given your body, but you've not given your whole self. You've given some of your emotions, but not the ultimate center of who you are. And if you haven't given yourself unconditionally and exclusively and permanently to another person, then you're in this halfway land of really taking from them and really demeaning what love is meant to be. And, and so we find in, in the Song of Songs, again, it, it exalts this to its rightful and, and proper place. So, so we know there are certain rituals we go through in life that signify a relationship or a contract. So, you know, business deal, you'll have a handshake, right? Eskimos rub noses. Uh, in certain cultures, it's a kiss on each side of the cheek. But for what marriage symbolizes and what marriage is in reality, uh, a hug or a handshake or a rubbing of noses won't suffice. God has prescribed what consummates the marriage relationship is the interlocking of bodies as he has de designed them that signify one plus one equals one. And it's, it's an amazing thing that, you know, in Genesis it says that the woman was taken from the side of man and, and taken out of man, and, and so that the two uh, are, are from bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And in the sex act, in sexual intercourse, with the interlocking of bodies, the way God designed it, the two actually are expressing a kind of oneness and reunion. And, and that beauty is something that, that God has designed. And, and that beauty uh, is seen to be part of our healing. Um, sex is not just about going in or letting someone in. It really is about welcoming your dearly beloved into the deepest regions of your psyche, which will be inaccessible to anyone else. That's, that's the exclusivity and beauty of this. Uh, and, and so we cheapen it if we use what God designed to make an adhesive power to the covenant promises we make before him in a worship service. We cheapen that if we, if we exercise it outside. Uh, one of the saddest things I've seen uh, is when I was in uh, Acapulco on a mission trip with uh, an organization that was, was adopting children in Acapulco uh, and protecting children from sexual trafficking. And on the streets, we saw that many children who, who hadn't come into the confines of the orphan home, they were, they were sniffing glue. Uh, they were using uh, airplane glue, you know, that, that for airplane models and stuff that, that stink up a room. They were taking that and sniffing it. They were using recreationally what God had designed to be an adhesive. 
And when they did that recreationally, they were slowly and in a piecemeal way destroying parts of their brain to the point where I just remember some of these uh, these children who, like their eyes no longer could focus or work right, and they were numbing the pain, horrible pain, I'm sure that they've experienced. But, but I think about that as an analogy to, to our sexuality, that when we use what God prescribed to be an adhesive, it's good for locking lives together permanently. When we use that recreationally, we are going to harm ourselves in ways uh, that are horrible, that are twisted, uh, and, and so, again, the, the redemption of, of this is where I want to focus. But I do want to say that uh, ways that we use what God intends to adhere to relationships together, uh, ways that we are tempted to abuse that are pornography, which cheapens the sex act and, by the way, often uses people who are being sexually trafficked. And if you have access, you think, to a pornographic site and say, well, I'm not paying any money to it. You are because they're tracking how many people have paid so they can charge ads. And you're supporting sexual trafficking, but you're also deteriorating your own sense uh, of the holiness of sexuality. But not only that, having sex outside of marriage, having sex before marriage, any and all sex experiences outside of marriages, outside of the confines of a one-woman, one-man lifetime vow is equivalent in some way to glue sniffing. What glue sniffing does uh, to our, our physicality, this uh, misconstrual of what God provided sexuality for is damaging to us. And the Song of Songs exists to basically say, well, there are all of those destructive ways that, that sexuality comes to us. God is about redeeming, restoring, and using our sexuality for good. And so in the, in the confines of a marriage... Sexual experience is meant to be repeated physically as a renewal of vows. Uh, That when a husband and wife within marriage experience sexual intercourse, what happens there, it establishes something. And I'm going to just say, when couples go away on a honeymoon, there's something sacred that happens by their getting away and experiencing and devoting themselves to each other that when they come back, they're changed. But in uh, a regular, normal marriage relationship that is, is healthy, when sexual relations are experienced, it does something that uplifts the marriage. Paul Turnier is a, uh, a famous Christian counselor, and he talked about sex within marriage is urgent therapy. Sex within marriage, uh, where the relationship is functioning appropriately, uh, is th- love therapy for soul and body to be given to each other. And, and this is what we find in the Song of Songs. It says that our sexuality is meant to be a form of communication, a form of recreation, a form of play, fiercely devoted, God-given each of the members of that couple passionately saying to each other, I want to make love to you, and I desire that you make love to me. And that 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 is the healthy plane that God has lifted our sexuality to. Sex is intended to be deeply enjoyed, a passionate, life-giving love affair with laughter, fiercely protected, drenched in freedom, and not just a stuffy, awkward thing to be endured. And again, we're, we're all sexually fallen. We're all sexual sinners. We're all broken. We're all in the same boat in, that, in those terms. And so there's none of us that can claim to be pure in word, in thought, in deed, in, in all the ways, because we all experience sin in all these ways. But what I want you to know, God is about redeeming us, and he's about making uh, a healthy sexual relationship a window into his heart of passionate love for us. 
The Song of Songs is not an allegory where you can make everything about something in the Trinity or the Bible or our relationship with God, but it is a window into his heart. And his heart is for each one of us, and his heart is restless until we experience that love. And our ultimate need is not sexual experience. Jesus lived the fullest life that has ever been lived as a single who never experienced, gave, or received any kind of sexual affection. The fullest of life can be lived apart from it, but the fullest of life cannot be lived apart from experiencing the blessing that, of love received from Jesus. And so what we need to do is ultimately bring our brokenness to God because here's the reality. Your purity and my purity, no matter how you've lived, is not based on what you have done with your body, but it's based on what Jesus Christ did with his body. And Jesus Christ with his body paid it all. And that is the ultimate window of how far the redemptive love of God will go to chase after us. And you know, when, when we ask, we pray, and seek that God would fill our lives with this kind of redemptive, pure, and powerful love, when we support marriages, when we support it in our own marriages, allocating the time and the space for it, then we're welcoming in the revolutionary power of God's healing love. And I want us to be a force for that. I want our church to be a force of that for those who are married. I want us to be an encouragement for those who are single to stay the course that it's worth it to pursue the call of God, even if that call is going to be a life of singleness. That is the fullest of callings. Uh, and that God would, would lay upon our congregation, our life, and as individuals that we know uh, the love that ultimately secures what is best and right and full for us as part of the revolution that God has to heal the brokenness on our planet, to heal our brokenness, and to make us conveyors of who Jesus is. And I think after a sermon of this, like this, there can't be a better thing for us to do than to come to God around the Lord's table. Because what the Lord's table is, is basically Jesus saying, I am in covenant with you. I love you knowing the worst about you. And I have gone the furthest distance to bring you back to myself. And all you've got to do is be honest, honest before me about your need and your brokenness. And let me love you. Let me minister to you. Let me come to you in all the ways that you are broken. And so that's what, what we're going to do now. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to spend time around the Lord's Supper and sing a song and go out of this place. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you address these topics that uh, they're hard, but they're good for us to grapple with. And you do it because you want us healed. I pray for those who've experienced particular brokenness and trauma that, uh, Lord, if this been, has been difficult, that they would find greater healing in you this morning, a path of healing. I pray for marriages that um, this is either a compartment of the life that uh, needs to be addressed or just the whole of the marriage needs to be addressed, that you would lift them up into your presence and encourage them, Lord. You're not a God who berates or beats us down. You're a God who comes to us, Lord, because you want us to flourish. And so uh, I pray as we spend time quietly, authentically before you, we would just be very honest in those silent prayers to come as we are to the God who knows the worst about us and loves us anyway. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.